This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hey, this is Ed Jurdy from the Band of Heathens, and you're listening to Rock and Roll Archaeology. Is there a library, a bookstore around here where I could get books on rock and roll? Rock and roll. It's totally true. This is a story that needs to be told. These rock and rollers want something to read. Welcome to another edition of Rock and Roll Librarian. I had to think about that for a second. Yeah, you really. I was almost going to say Deeper Digs in Rock. Where am I? Because uh, yeah. I've been doing a lot of Deeper Digs in Rock stuff lately. But uh, no, no, this is this is a companion show to Deeper Digs in Rock, and even Deeper Dig in Rock by a professional ex professional librarian. Although you're still, <laughs> yeah. You're still I, official. I, I think you're still even working over there, right? Yeah, I, I'm playing with my titles. I'm either a librarian emeritus oh, a or, librarian a, emeritus. or a return retiree, which is really my official re- return, title. But return I'm, retiree. Yeah, I'm working between 10 and 12 hours on fascinating things like contracts. So, so let's change the name of the show to Return Retiree Rock and Roll Librarian. Now, how about uh, Rock and Roll Librarian Emeritus? That sounds like a a professor. I like that. Yeah, okay. Rock and roll librarian emeritus. Yeah. Cool. (laughs) Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing okay. I've I've been uh, in my more free time. You've been in your cups? No, not. Or your feels? Or you've been in your feels? PG tips. Your PG tips. Me too. Um, It's that that time of day, uh, folks. It's uh, a little too early for beer and whiskey. So, yeah. But, um, yeah, I've been uh, spending my time in semi-retirement by playing more music and being in uh, an extra band and, um, you know, really growing that way. So that's really fun. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. 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 You're chasing your passion. I know. It's, you know, you can chase your passion at any age, people. Yeah. That's what I want to say. You know, retirement pays you to do so. Yeah. Well, it pays me to do so. Not everybody. I'm (laughs) very uh, fortunate in that way. Yeah. Yeah. You chose correctly, uh, you know, civil service. Yeah. Kids. Now it's paying off. Yeah. Right. right. (laughs) Yeah. Good for you. Fuck you, Cheryl. (laughs) (laughs) And you? That's not true. I'm very happy for you. And besides, we're doing the entire Pantheon podcast here for me. So I am... I am very busy, but happily busy. Right. Uh, you found your passion. Yeah. Lots of great stuff going on. So, yeah. uh, all right. So, uh, what do you got uh, teed up for us this episode? Teed up. Interesting. You should say T, the yeah. word, the letter T. Oh. Um, first, I thought we could just listen to a bit and see if people know who we're going to be talking about today. Ooh, secrets, a bit secrets. of a song. Oh, okay. It's a guessing game. Yeah. Oh, all right. All right. So, let's play a little bit. Of a you know a fairly well sort of famous song. I mean, I know it. You know mm-hmm. it. Um, but let's see what everybody else thinks, and then we'll uh, we'll be- give the big reveal on the on the other side. Mm-hmm. 
Well, why don't you tell everybody what the name of that tune was and why we started the show with it? Yes, and T's are very much involved. The name of the song is Time is Tight, and the name of the book is Time is Tight, My Life Note by Note, and the author is Booker T. Jones. Booker T. Jones and the MGs. Yes, Booker T. Booker and, T the and the MGs. MGs. Yes, That's right, that them. Booker T. Yeah, it's a, his, his memoir. So we're talking stacks today. We're talking stacks. We're talking... Um, we're talking Duck Dunn, Steve Cropper, Al Jackson oh, Jr., yeah. the yeah. rest Monsters. of the, the MGs. We're yeah. talking uh, Jim Stewart, who was the uh, uh, studio the owner. Yep. Yep. And uh, the, all the, kinds the of the stacks. Yes. Uh, and huge numbers of people that this man, Booker T. Jones, has worked with throughout the years and is still working with. He's a musical genius. And he has written a very readable and interesting memoir, which is basically a series of essays. And uh, following along with the idea of the title, Time is Tight, the essays are not necessarily in chronological order. So he's basically, he's saying time is tight and time is loose too. And all of these things that happened to me in my life, they come to the forefront and to the background, and they're related to each other in some way. So I didn't feel like I could really follow a strictly chronological order. Mm, sounds um, like something a genius would do. Yep. And adding to the genius of it is before every chapter, he has a little musical phrase that he refers to that corresponds to the feeling of what he's talking about in the chapter. And he's written new musical phrases that when you listen to the audiobook, which I did, you can hear the musical phrases and, and hear kind of how maybe there's like 12 of them and they, you know, they're interspersed throughout the book and how that kind of ties in the themes of the book in a musical way too. So mm. it's not just a written Original. thing. It's, Interesting. Yeah. And he's also out with a new album called Note by Note, mm -hmm. which is, as far as I can tell, basically songs that he's done in the past redone with new singers and and personnel. So oh, okay. there's all these things kind of like happening. all Otis Redding uh, songs and things like that uh, redone for a new age. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Got it. So um, anyway, the um, the you know just to kind of uh, let it summarize a little bit about Booker T. Jones. That's as, what the show's about. Get to right. it. That's right. He had he spent eight years at Stax and worked with the people that I just mentioned in, in Booker T and the MGs, but also, as you may or may not know, Booker T and the MGs were a, a biracial or multiracial group. They're uh, Booker T and Al Jackson Jr. Yeah, two African-Americans, two white The guys. drummer, yeah, yeah, and Duck Dunn and um, Steve Cropper, Cropper were yeah. white. And um, and that was very unusual even in the Donald early Duck, 60s. Yeah, even though Donald Duck Dunn was in the original bass player, right? Right. Okay. yeah. And, you I'm know, sure that, we'll get into all of yeah. that. Yeah. Right? So he, but what what he says at the beginning of the book is Jim Stewart created a sanctuary, a fortress in enemy territory in Memphis, Tennessee, where the rules of segregation remained a feeble shadow, and where whites and blacks created music together on a daily basis. But as we will see, that only you know, happened inside. Yeah, those there walls. was uh, there was that that was the way it started, but that wasn't always the way it was, and it couldn't be in United States of America. With you know, as as it still is now, racially yeah. divided. Yeah. yeah. So, um, 
Booker was born in Memphis in 1944. And as you recall, it's the same city that um, another person that we covered, Robert mm. Johnson, mm -hmm. um, went and uh, kind of professionalized. Right. And yeah. he, he was from the Mississippi Delta, but he used to go to Memphis to get his culture, his education, and his musical, you know, kind of more musical mm -hmm. uh, influences than he could get in the Delta. So Memphis was a quite, uh, you know, it was a segregated city, but the it blacks... It had a, a middle-class uh, yeah, African-American community a, that was uh, tolerated, I think is the right word, mm -hmm. by uh, the white society. Yeah. There was, it was kind of a parallel. Some black people were prosperous, middle class, you know, and then there was Beale Street with all the yeah. music. The mm -hmm. education was highly, highly regarded. And he had a, a mom and a dad who were a civil. I hope so. <laughs> a civil servants like his dad was a science teacher high right, school teacher right, his mom right. was a clerical worker mm -hmm. he had a warm loving stable home and not just that but he showed quite early that he was a musical prodigy by age six um he started to hear rhythms everywhere and began as he said to absorb all sound and he was always thinking about music and all of the instruments he'd ever heard and throughout his childhood and his teenagehood, he had this amazing, supportive group of parents, teachers, church, and a community of musicians that supported him and knew he was a musical genius and helped him feel comfortable and have the freedom to explore uh, the way he needed to and wanted to. Oh, just like my life. <laughs> That's not what I've heard about your life. Okay. But so, yeah, so it was, um, you know, his, his mother played the piano, both parents sang in church. So he had that, you know, he was greatly influenced by his mother's piano playing. Yeah. Yeah. Both of his parents, right, were uh, amateur musicians. Yeah, yeah. I think his dad was mainly a singer, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, he got a paper route by, you know, at a young age and, um, and his father bought him a clarinet when he was nine years old and he had his uh, first um, performance at the neighborhood barber barber shop, um, and by the time he was in middle school, he was allowed in the school band, even though he was three years too young. Um, the teacher recognized that he was more than capable and able to to play, and he he decided to take up oboe because no one else wanted to, um, and quickly learned really? several different. My instruments. school, everybody fought over the oboe. Oboe? <laughs> no, you know, oboe was a very unusual thing. It was very hard to play, too. That's why nobody wanted to play it. Oh, really? Everybody yeah. fought over the oboe. Really? No. Nobody fought over the oboe. Right. You're saying no, everybody... Nobody, no. nobody fought over <laughs> okay. the oboe. It's got a, like a different read than any other uh, instrument like that. But the most important thing is the first time he saw him in B3 organ, he felt a powerful... Irresistible urge, urge to right. sit at that oh, organ. I know that urge. And he took on an extra paper route so he could pay for the more expensive lessons that Ooh. it would have taken to. Dedication. You know. By that's the time, how you do it, kids. That's right. Get you your get paper, an route. paper route. Two paper routes. Right. And he was a busy boy. By the time he was 12, he played at afternoon teas that the African-American church ladies um, gave in their homes, and he was uh, employed to accompany Mahalia Jackson singing ah. Oh Precious Lord, and he felt 
that uh, it was almost a religious experience. Yeah, Yeah, a powerful presence, a commanding and soulful voice. So this recording that we're going to play doesn't have the 12-year-old Booker T. Jones playing on it, but Mm -hmm. just to give you an idea of this woman who exerted such... And what uh, she um, could do, Mahalia Jackson, yes. Yeah, I mean, Mm -hmm. what boy gets to do that? Right. All right, so let's start off with a a little uh, Take My Hand, Precious Lord. Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, let me stand. Well, first, Shelley. Yes, ma'am. Are you ready to pray with me? Yes. <laughs> Praise Jesus. I, I've got. Wow. I mean, I I feel I feel I the felt Lord. It. I felt it. Oh yeah. Uh, and uh, I'm sure Booker T uh, did as well. And of course, you know, there's that organ sitting underneath. Yeah. That whole thing really causing yeah. your uh, your body to feel yeah, the feel goose, the words. The you know. So yeah. so I can see where that uh, definitely made a big impression on the young man. Oh yeah. Yeah. In high school, by the time he was in tenth grade, he was the assistant band director. This is <laughs> I mean, he was constantly yeah. too young yeah. for everything yeah. he was doing. Yeah. Um and he got together with the Maurice White and Richard Chan and Maurice White, who went on Maurice to Maurice White from yeah. Earth, Wind, and Fire? That's right. Holy shit. Yep. He, yep. They went to high school together. Oh. Um, and they formed a band and, you know, went out and did gigs. He even... This is how, you know, like many people like Tom Petty, Bruce Springsteen... I bet Springsteen. they played a lot during September. <laughs> I think so. Yes. Um but unlike some of the other people that we've covered, they didn't have to, he didn't have to like sneak out of the house or do this, you know, despite his parents. No, uh, they encouraged right. it. They his, drove him to the place. They did. They drove And then waited him. outside for him to finish That's and then right. took him home and, and then fed him properly That's and right. praised him for all the good hard work that he did. Can you imagine? That's so wonderful. No, I can't yeah. imagine. And, <laughs> and even when he started playing on Beale Street, like he took his bass to Beale Street when he was like a senior in high school and stood around and waited for people to ask him to sub for somebody or whatever. His dad got a former student of his who was also a musician to kind of chaperone Booker. So he always was under, you know, the watchful care of people in the community and his, you know, his family and, like I said, in the church. Um, and it was there when he was playing on Beale Street that he bumped into Al Jackson Jr., and who was also very young for being a drummer in a band in, you know, in Memphis. And, uh, you know, so that that's where they first encountered each other. He... You know, still had his paper routes, but it turned out he had to kind of drop things because he was in the school band, he was in the marching band, he was doing church activities, he was in sports, he he was actually dating, you know, it wasn't like he was a total nerd and didn't have a social life. Um, 
And and he played an additional uh, instrument when he was in the marching band, which was trombone. So he was truly, from a very young age, a total uh, multi-instrumentalist. Wait, why is trombone? The, that's in every marching band. No, I know. I'm just saying he, he picked that up, too. Oh, you know? oh, He's already oh played as a, the oboe. Piano, clarinet, uh, oboe, and of Hammond course, B3, Hammond, bass, right? guitar, and now trombone. Oh, of course. So okay. amazing, uh, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And added to his other activities, in 1960, he started his career as a session musician while still in high school with satellite recording studios, which oh, later became Stacks. Yes, and yes, it was, yes. they had set up shop, as you've talked about in, you know, in the Rock and Roll Archaeology episode and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In, a, in a band, in a movie theater. an old movie yeah. theater. Mm-hmm. They had the recording studio in the theater part and the record shop in the front. And this was Jim Stewart and Estelle, his sister Estelle Axton's baby. Right. Yeah. So um, the first song he recorded with Satellite Records while in high school, playing now another instrument, saxophone, (laughs) (laughs) was Carla and Rufus Thomas, a daughter and father team. And the song was called Cause I Love You. And this is Booker T playing saxophone. All right, let's listen to Cause I Love You. Stax's first hit oh, when it was still yeah. called Satellite Records, mm-hmm. which also did have a record store actually in the building. Yeah. That people could come and buy the records hot off the presses, as they might say. Yeah. that Like a donut uh, shop. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah they, yeah. they baked them in the back <laughs> every morning, bring them out front and, uh, you know, have them ready for the, uh, the early risers and the cops. Yeah. The yeah. early risers. Yeah. Like donuts do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very early. Um, yeah, well, like, so that was his first session uh, 1960, job. by the way. 1960. Yeah. Um, well, when he was a senior in high school, of course, it came time for him to decide, you know, where to go to college because that was part of the his family's plan. Yeah. Damn it. Yep. You're going to college. And he applied to the Indiana University Music School in Bloomington. Um, uh, and he took some extra music theory classes after school you know, in high school to be able to pass the exams he needed to get into the, to that college. But he was still playing um, in the satellite house band. Well, not still. He started playing in the satellite house band almost every night after school. And the next song he played on, which I thought was very interesting how they recorded this. It's a song by William Bell, who went on to become oh, one of their... It ran Stax their, uh, uh, later. Oh, no, that was Al Bell. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. William You're... Bell was one of the staff songwriters. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yes. I know, yes. everybody's name is Bell. I'm mixing my bells up. <laughs> Always um, mixing my bells up. So the um, the song was You Don't Miss Your Water 
parentheses till your well runs dry. Close parentheses. That's Some a, of these that's songs. That's a weird name yeah. for it. That's a weird title. And he played organ. You don't miss on your water. Song, till your well runs dry. Um, he played organ on the song, but Satellite Records couldn't afford Hammond B3 yet. So he played the Hammond M3. And it was pumped to a speaker in the men's room, the men's restroom, where there was an echo in the tiled room, which was sent back to the sound room, mixed with the recording, and gave it this really unique and interesting sound. And so we're going to start the song from the second verse, because that's where we're going to hear... Yeah, we'll hear that organ come in. Right, Right. and Mm -hmm. you know, like um, the call and response between the singer and the organ. And they recorded it on the first take, and it was a hit. Okay, folks, so so listen closely. Listen to uh, Booker T. Jones playing uh, the, uh, the M3 uh, in, uh, in the bathroom. Well, he's not playing in the bathroom, just the speakers in the bathroom. But uh, it's subtle, but it's in there. Yeah, but you can, you can picture a men's restroom in a movie theater while you listen to the song. I, I don't know if that would really be helpful, but sure. Scratch, scratch well, and sniff, too. <laughs> you don't... You, you're, <laughs> Here's You Don't Miss Your Water. I kept you crying Said you I was a playboy I wouldn't be true But when you Ah, that's a that's an awesome song. Yeah, uh, written written and recorded by uh, William Bell there, nineteen sixty one. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I don't know. Do I I don't miss my water very often. Do you? <laughs> no, because I, I still can't get over the. I'm sorry. It's just, well, no. the title. Okay, we interesting have, metaphor. We have, but we have uh, excellent water in San Francisco. We just turn the well, tap on. Well, yeah, from Hetch Hetchy, you know. Yep. So uh, yeah, it's from I don't the need Sierra, to miss any there. water. No, I'm no, very lucky. Yeah. I don't live in Flint, Michigan. Well, or yeah, God knows where else, or uh, anywhere these else days. in the world. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But uh, okay, uh, you know, that's definitely. Uh, a little uh, uh, insight into uh, Booker T's, uh, you know, now famous uh, instrument that he is mostly known for, right. which is the the Hammond. Uh, not quite the B three, but uh, it's you know the the general gist is there, right? Yeah, it's it's very cool. I love the sound that it's made that's being made there with that very not you know not a modern technology. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, that's how they had to do things back in the day. That's you know, right. you make it up, uh, yep. duct tape, you know? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. You know, shortly after that, everybody wants to know, how did Booker T and the MGs get formed, right? So uh, you are you going to ask me that question? Hey, Shelly, how did Booker T and the MGs get formed? Well, I'm Just glad, wondering. I'm glad you asked. In 1962, 
you know, like I said, he was a, a, in the house band at Satellite Records. Yeah. Uh, the singer, Billy Lee Riley, who I don't know if anybody remembers at all, but he was supposed to record and he had four musicians, four studio musicians lined up to help him record an album, but he he left and he went to another studio for some reason. So these guys had a whole afternoon of studio time just to muck around. And they were Al Jackson Jr., Steve Cropper, Booker T. Jones, and oh, Louis Steinberg. I know we're going now. Now, Louis Steinberg was the first yeah, the original bass player. Right. player mm-hmm. And they started working up some ideas and just fooling around. And Steve asked Booker, oh, I, you know, there was a little tune you'd been fooling around with on the piano. And let's, let's try working that up. So, Like every other band will after this thing comes out. Right. Yeah. And every other band. Just and, about. Uh, so, so Booker, well, every other band has a keyboard player, I should say. Some right. somewhere along the line, somebody's going to start playing this thing, and then everybody's going to kick in and do the exact, you know, play the whole thing. Yeah, it has to have a keyboard on. Yeah, you got to yeah. have a keyboard. Though. So he used. You're not the doing this in a metal band. Contrapuntal chord triad structural rules from of, the 18th century Baroque Bach. Of course he did. Yes. Is there he, any other possibility? He was a music student. Yes, no surprise. And he added a blues progression and a little swing, mm. and that's how this song came together they they played it and the memphis sound was born louis said that's so funky it smells like onions and they wanted to call it funky onions mm. but mrs axton thank who was god jim stewart's sister that's said right. you can't call something funky onions in this day and time and she decided green onions was better so uh, that's it was, it. It was it a, originally recorded as a B-side, released That's in May right. of 62. That's right. It was a B-side. Not yeah. released as an A-side until a few months later. Well, it's an instrumental, so you can see why they probably right. went with that. Yep. Uh, and uh, But it became uh, a staple and very quickly, and then they put it back out as an A-side, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was immediately popular. Peaked yeah. at number three on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. And because they were going to put this out, they needed a name for their band because you can't put a record out without a band name on it. So Al Jackson said because Booker wrote the song, they had to call it Booker T and something. And he looked outside and he saw Chips Moman's MG automobile yep. and blurted it out. It's got to be Booker T and the MGs. And they went off with that. And that, that name stuck. Booker T and the Mighty Greats. Yep. He was very young and inexperienced, but you know, they put that they put that record out and they had a new band. Okay. Let's let everybody who may be going there's gotta be at least one person out there going, Green Onions. What, I don't know what that the, song. What the heck is that? They'll know it when they there's, hear it. Oh, of course. Here you go. First of all, you got to call out Cropper for that just awesome little guitar hits. Yeah. You know, every four beats. Yeah. 
Uh, and then, um, you know, I always find it really interesting when you get a cat like um, Booker T, who's, you know, a, a musical genius, was a prodigy, uh, and, and can play just about anything, but is able to dial it back oh, yeah. to simplicity and create just the solid hook yeah i know your brain's got to be going well i could i could put this diminished tin here and then then, then there's the ninth over you know yeah. but refraining from doing that to right. to keep it solid and simple i think the best musicians are like that i mean when you think of like george harrison's guitar playing he's not he's not shredding and steve cropper for that matter too he's an incredible rhythm guitar player he can play some solos you know but that's not what it's about it's about being a band and yeah, where, service, well, where it's, you it's fit all in. about the song yeah you got to service in service the of the song yeah, yeah. and uh, you know there are certain songs where you know yeah shredding is uh, you know what's required but uh, you know um uh, i've said this uh, time and time again i'll always keep saying this that the you know the muse uh, lies between the notes, mm, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, and jazz musicians are famously, you know, it's about, you know, the space, uh, in between is the point. And, uh, uh, and you know, you kind of, you kind of definitely feel it. Every, everything's in its right place with that song. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing mm. with the, how young the people in the band were too. Yeah. Yeah. 1962. So he's like, what, 17. Yep. Yeah. 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 And, and that's the same num uh, same summer. 1962, before he went away to Bloomington to go to school, that he met somebody very important in his life, and he was very important in this man's life, and that was Otis Redding, Ooh. who we talked the big about. Man. That's right, the big man. Right. And we, we've talked about him, yeah, about one of his yes. biographies. Yeah. We know a little yeah. bit about Otis, and well, you talked about him. In, in the, rock and roll archaeology, the, plays a big part. That's uh, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, our stacks, when we talked about stacks. Yeah. You know, the thing I don't realize when we're talking about all this music history is just like Booker was only 17 when they met, and Otis was only 20. Yeah. And they came from totally different, you know, environments and upbringings mm -hmm. otis was a purely instinctive you know singer and he was all about it feeling. was all emotion and yeah feeling right. whereas you know booker's a, booker trained was musician, a, yeah. a student yeah you know yeah. and they just totally clicked from the moment otis sat down on on the piano bench the story of Otis coming as a driver to drive his friend, I think Pine Top Perkins or somebody. Yeah, yeah to, that's who it was. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, everybody thinking Otis was just the driver and the, you know, the roadie. And he had come specifically, though, because he wanted to sing for these people. And he plopped himself down next to Booker and started singing These Arms of Mine. And that was, and Booker was overcome just like he had been when he sat down and played for Mahalia Jackson. That's how how you know um i don't know how, affecting how deeply mm -hmm. otis touched him yeah yeah all right so let's uh let's uh, put the king on here uh and play a little of these arms of mine these arms of mine Yeah. 
that is really a, an intense song. And you just like, okay, Otis, whatever you say. That's the way I feel. <laughs> um, he, uh, from the female perspective, yep. uh, I'm sure that is uh, a very common reaction. That's right. He mm -hmm. was quite a lady charmer. Yeah. Um, yeah. They, you know, uh, Booker says that uh, this, you know, from this time on started a friendship between them and their collaboration changed Booker's life and his attitudes towards music that he was composing. And he, Otis, became a staple, of course, at Stax and one of basically their most important artist after he got there. And... um so just as Booker started college in Indiana, Green yeah, Onions. Let me, let, me, let me just pause you for a minute. Okay. And just, you know, again, uh, I mean, to give more accolades to Otis Redding, I mean, um, you know, um, I think this is the last we're going to actually hear from, from Otis. Is that right? Um, in the story with Booker. Oh, he, can, he pops up again. But, All right. Yeah. Uh, of course, you know, he dies uh, 1967, uh, just after uh, the Monterey Pop Festival, where, you know, it's his breakout performance. He's about ready to just become, you know, one of the biggest stars uh, in the universe. Um, you know, dies in a plane crash. And uh, just as um, a new song is about ready to, to hit, which is sitting on the dock in the That's bay, right. uh, written just, uh, just a couple of miles north of where we're at right now, mm -hmm. uh, up in... Uh, Sausalito, Sausalito mm -hmm. and um, becomes uh, the first posthumous number one record on uh, the Billboard uh, Hot 100. Wow. Yeah. And not just that one, but right before he died in that plane crash, he was composing and recording furiously, as Booker says, as though he had a premonition about his death. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it was a, a huge loss yeah. to me. And, and I think Stax itself was, you know, was concerned they could even survive. Survive, right. Uh, when, yeah. When that That's happened. That's how important he That's, was yeah, to that yeah, studio. That, yeah. That was the point I wanted to make. So. Yeah. Definitely. All right. All right. Let, but let's get back to the man yeah. in question, uh, Booker T. Jones. Yeah. Booker went off to college just as Green Onions was becoming a total hit. And the people in the music business couldn't believe that he was leaving, you know, stacks, even though he didn't really leave it, to not you know, take this opportunity to really dig into the MGs and tour and stuff like that because they had a hit. But he was determined to go to college. That's what his parents wanted. That's what he wanted. He wanted to be able to teach music and he wanted to get a BA in music education. But what he did was he split his time between Bloomington, Indiana and Memphis. And uh, during the week he went to school, took classes, played in the marching band. Um, you know, <laughs> like, like a normal and, college kid. And right? was in a, you know, another like a rock band also. And on the weekends, he took the bus or drove back to Memphis to play and record at Stax. So he was a busy, busy boy. And while, you know, he, what one thing he said was that Indiana was, was a breath of fresh air because it was so much more liberal than 
Memphis, Tennessee, even though, like we said, <laughs> Memphis had a strong middle class of black population. Yeah. But Indiana, I mean, it's funny to think of now, like Indiana was liberal, <laughs> you know, well, at least yeah. Bloomington was because yeah. it was a college town. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, now we're in the, the 1960s and, uh, you know, there is, you know, definitely the civil rights movement is in full swing. Coming, yeah. um, you know, granted, uh, Indiana is not part of the, the Jim Crow South, although so there's plenty of racism to be had uh, everywhere, but yeah. uh, definitely an improvement. Uh, mm-hmm. But I can see that uh, he would enjoy being in Indiana compared to yeah. In school know, the life, the, that on was campus in. was still segregated. I mean, people were very kind and friendly and all that, but the black kids who were in the minority definitely hung out together. Mm. You know, because yeah. that was, I mean, that was the way it was in my high school in L.A. too. You know, so. Things don't change that much. But around this time, also, uh, Isaac Hayes joined Stax. And Isaac Hayes, who went on to have a very big solo career. What you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> and and film career, right? Mm. Um, and he uh, became one of the staff songwriters. And also, they became a keyboard tag team. Oh, uh, between Booker T and right. Isaac Hayes. Because yeah. Oh, yeah. on all, mm-hmm. most of these songs, there was piano and organ. So mm-hmm. if, you know, they would just come in to record a song and one of them would take one chair and the other would take the other. And that's how it, you know, that's how it worked out. Um, and around this time, also, Louis Steinberg made some drunken mistakes, which got him thrown into the the pen right before they were going to do a gig. Oh, need in, a new bass player uh, in Knoxville. He drove his car up the steps of the Knoxville Coliseum, and um, they had to play the gig with just three people, no bass player. And while he was in jail, Steve Cropper got disgusted and had his eye already on Duck Dunn, um, who was playing with the Marquis. And so they just slid Duck Dunn in there, and poor Louis was out of a. Out of a gig. Out of a gig. Out of a job. Yeah. Um, He also realized at a certain point, Booker, that, um, you know, he like I said, he was very young and he was not well versed in the business of music as many musicians and especially black musicians, as we know, were taken advantage of by white producers and label owners. And uh, the same was true um, with Jim Stewart, who came in. And, you know, I mean, he was a good guy, fostered this great musical atmosphere, but he also came in in order to get production credits for, you know, like publishing rights for the songs that he recorded, even though they were written for the most part by Booker T or other people on staff. So they never had their publishing rights, which was something, of course, that uh, went on throughout, you know, the music business, as we well know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so now we're going to get to a song that's kind of interesting because it had many different incarnations. And he originally heard this song in 1963 when Booker T and the MGs opened for Jackie Wilson in Chicago. And Jackie Wilson was a, a dynamic, electric singer. The women went total nuts for him. Yep. And Booker thought he was fantastic. About four years later, Jackie Wilson had a big hit with the song Higher and Higher. And this has a really interesting history for Booker because fast forward, Booker had a, you know, decided he'd like to hear it and play it differently. So he did a demo of Higher and Higher his own way, which he had 
Rita Coolidge and her sister Priscilla, who became Booker's wife, right. they sang back up with him. Mm. And then later, no, Rita, Rita did it. Even well. later, he produced Rita doing his arrangement of Higher and Higher, and it was a huge hit I think that's hit the biggest hit. Yeah, yeah, and I think that was the biggest uh, version, uh, if I remember right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Should we play a little of, of each? Yeah, a little bit, just okay, to give so, a flavor. So we'll start. Though a, we a, don't, I'm sorry, we don't have the demo of Booker singing it, but later in his life, he, he recorded re, a similar it. one himself. Yeah, which uh, has a lot in common with the Rita Coolidge right, version, exactly. if I remember It's right. the same arrangement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so, but well, let's start with Jackie Wilson, which was the original uh, out uh, there. And then uh, we'll go to uh, Rita. Let's do the big one, Rita's, and then uh, Booker. Booker T's uh, most recent version of that. Okay. Of uh, Higher and Higher. Yep. Your love has lifted me <laughs> higher and yeah. higher. And that Jackie Wilson version, whoo, that's hot. Oh, that's fucking hot. Uh, I love the yeah. backup vocals. On yeah. That. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. That You want to talk about high. And, of course, you know, he's already got a four-octave range. Uh, and now you got these, you know, uh, girls in the like background going, just, oh, my God. Yeah, I was I, actually, I was listening to that going, ah, that's really up there. Yeah. Um, uh, but, uh, of course, uh, you know, we do get to see that, um, I think that was number six, uh, a number six, uh, hot 100. Uh, I think it was number one on the R and B charts. Uh, and then the Rita version got to number two. Um, so, uh, you know, but, uh, uh, you know, the, the Rita one is, hits. they were both hits. Yeah. yeah. It two different eras. Uh, right. so I, thank you very much for getting me out of that mess. <laughs> All right. So. Did we listen yes. to Rita's too? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. And Booker's. Okay. <laughs> Keep up. <laughs> All right. All righty. So, even though, let's, we're, we're going back to 1963 here. 
because we just hopscotched Back into the to future. 63. He's 19 yes. and he just he gets married. Are that's, we doing this in a, in a DeLorean or? No, we're just doing this in our imaginations, dear. Okay. All right. So he, he got married to somebody yeah. named Gigi um, and she became immediately pregnant with Booker T. the third their first son, um, and they lived in married students' housing, which was, of course, a different experience for most of, most of the people at school. Meanwhile, Booker was, you know, on the road back and forth to Memphis, arguably not a good, uh, probably a very attentive first-time dad, because he was very, very busy. busy. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> very busy. Yeah, um, he's still driving back and forth from uh, from Indiana to Memphis, right? Right. And uh, he's still got a full school load and workload. Mm-hmm. Oh, goody. Yeah. So, yeah, during the same period around 1964, he recorded another record with Carla Thomas at Stax. And um, this one was interesting because he was trying to arrange it in a way that she liked. And he tried every rhythm and tempo he could think of. And finally, she got sick of the whole thing and decided she didn't want to do the song. But like a true, like a true, true saying, um, he was persistent. Mm. And finally, he realized it needed a Motown style bass line to work and played it for her. And she was really excited and they did the song and everybody loved it and you know what his point is that all the elements had been there the the vocalist the you know the song but that he needed to arrange them all into a way that actually made it work which what makes him a great arranger and mm. we do need arrangers yes we do so the song was no surprise B- he also does that yeah b-a-b-y baby Oh, yeah, I could figure that out. B-A-B-Y means baby. B-A-B-Y, baby. All right, let's listen to it. Got something? All right. Hello? Check. One, yep. two. Are you there? Mm-hmm. What were we talking about? What song did we just play? We played B-A-B-Y Baby by Carla Thomas. I just wanted to make you spell it out again. B-A-B-Y. Okay. Let's get back to the story. Yeah, let's get back to the story. No more listening to me sing. All right. So... Meanwhile, yes. Otis was mm. getting more into rock and roll. Yes. That rock and roll business. Well, he was surrounded by them there at the Monterey Pop Festival. That's and, right. Uh, and you know, he could see he could see the excitement. He could see what was coming. He yeah. could see that this was a coming out party of which the Monterey Pop Festival really is. That's right. And Booker tells about going to Monterey Pops Festival right after they MGs got back from a European tour and they were still wearing their their teal mohair suits and really, you know, 
didn't quite, um, you know, fit in in uh, Monterey, California, which there was all hippies and everything. Um, but, you know, and one of the songs they played at Monterey Pop was Satisfaction. Now, I thought it was, you know, by the Rolling Stones, as we all know. <laughs> well, oh, it is by the Rolling Stones. That's so, yeah, right. Yeah. Now, Fam- I thought- famously thought up by Keith Richards in yeah. the middle of the night by turning on a tape recorder and forgetting about it and finding it the next morning. Uh-huh. Uh, he does admit that the line itself was created originally as a horn line, mm. but later uh, famously just kept with the distorted guitar and ushered in a whole new sound in 1965. That's right. Well, it's it's. That's very interesting because what Booker says in his book is that Satisfaction was meant to be a guitar song. Now, maybe what he meant is it actually succeeded better as a guitar song. Um, He thought that the opening on the Stones song was perfect. Mm. And actually, Booker, another instrument he played was guitar, but he was discouraged from playing guitar by stacks because they weren't oriented really towards guitar. But he loved playing guitar. But he realized that satisfaction needed that electric guitar um, and that it gave it some authority and that that lick, you know, that's so famous made history. But Otis wanted to do it anyway. So they put in horns. They made a really tight arrangement. But Booker says, while the Stones record bounced and danced along, ours stomped and smashed you in the face. Who covers the Rolling Stones anyway? Well, all the bar bands do. Well, now, uh, <laughs> including uh, myself. Uh, but yeah, yeah it's kind of interesting that, you know, look, the Stones famously start off as, uh, you know, an English band trying to imitate uh, African-American uh, blues. Uh, you know, these guys were, were aficionados, uh, Richards, Jagger, Jones. And, and it's kind of full circle here that Otis and I believe the, the bar case or the horn section that are playing on that uh, particular uh, version from the Whiskey A Go-Go, uh, along with uh, Booker T and the MGs as the, the backing band, um, that, uh, you know, uh, they are now taking a white band that's trying to play black blues and now so it's cool it's awesome that uh, that that everybody is picking off of everybody at this point yeah that's what makes music interesting mm-hmm. right yeah, yeah 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 that's how it goes forward you know it, you know you, you steal right and and mix and meld The next song I wanted to talk about is by a pair that I just love, and they are Sam and Dave. Oh, yes. Now, Sam and Dave were an important Stax group, too, and they were, you know, they did incredible duets. They danced. They were phenomenal entertainers. entertainers. uh, Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
And um, a song that they did around that time that Booker played and, and arranged is called When Something is Wrong with My Baby. It was actually written by Isaac Hayes and the other staff songwriter who I can't recall who it was. When Booker heard them composing it in the next room, he was just drawn to it. It's like, I have to play on that record too. I mean, that's going to be an incredible record. And one of the things that drew him to it was that it was depicting life and love in its most beautiful state. And that's something he felt like he didn't have in his life yet. Like he and his wife didn't have a great relationship. He didn't feel like, you know, really in love. And he so he was searching for that for a long time. And on this song, um, Isaac is playing the piano and Booker is playing the organ. And he gives a beautiful explanation of how they laid the song out, how there's this a gospel piano the answering B3, and it's played in 6-8 time. And I would like to play it from the second verse, which is Sam Moore, who had really the more, I think, beautiful voice and emotional rendering. And Booker says, this is a record never to be forgotten. All right, so let's play a little of Sam and Dave's When Something Is Wrong With My Baby. People can say combination of the organ just soaring like that and the, like he said the piano and Sam and Dave's voice is, is just chilling it's all there yep it's all that yeah so he got his BA in music education moved back to Memphis full-time and he felt like the music education was you know really worth having um, under his belt, he gained the ability to transcribe music to a score, proficiency and knowledge of brass, strings, and woodwinds, which helped him become a regular arranger at Stax, and a knowledge of music history that made him better at creating music. And while he was at Stax, he played every conceivable instrument, whatever was needed or asked for, from tambourine to tuba. Yeah. I like that tambourine. Uh, speaking of T's, it's like we're on Sesame Street and T is the is the letter. The letter? The letter. Is yeah. T. The letter is T, tambourine to tuba. Booker T. Yeah. Booker T. Time is tight. Time is tight. Okay. So, we another better, better than peas. Yeah. We, peas. Popper blocker. <laughs> another uh, very well-known I think song of Booker T and the MGs is hip hug her Hip hug her 
I love that fuzz on the bass. Yeah. That's that, a... that, that, that's got hair on it. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I like it too. Amazing. I'm I'm very drawn to bass lines and so that that is it for me. Then why don't you marry one? I want to marry a bass line. I want to marry a bass line when I grow up. When I got to college, I learned how to play the bass just because I love bass lines so oh, much. Oh, there you go. Yep. Oh, how come you're not a bass player? Well, I can play the bass. Oh, okay. You know, but now I'm learning how to play the piano. I know. And I'm, you, I'm and you kind want of to be like, a singer. I'm kind of like Booker T, you know? Oh. I play oh. the bass, the guitar, the piano, the flute, all very, very badly, but, oh. you know, still. I'm spreading it around. Right. Yeah. 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 Like a like a virus? <laughs> yeah, right. I'm 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 spreading it like peanut butter actually. <laughs> we got to get moving, man. Yep. We're, 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 we're getting behind. I know, we're here. being silly. Okay, <laughs> another incredible performer and artist that Booker worked with was Albert King. Oh, yeah. Now, before he worked with Albert King, he'd heard rumors about Albert being scary and violent, but he was actually totally sweet and they uh, worked up a song for Albert King called "Born Under a Bad Sign." Know it well. Now I don't. I did not know. I thought that was a traditional song, but that was written by William Bell with music by Booker. And because astrology was kind of big at the time, that's that's why the name Bell, mm-hmm. you know, wrote it like that. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, you know, Albert King provides, of course, his amazing guitar fills. Booker said he was like a contortionist when he played the guitar. And of course, he was left-handed and um, that I believe he played the guitar upside down, but I'm not really sure. I'd have oh to no, he watch. played a flying V, so it doesn't matter. Oh, okay. He just flipped it around. Mm-hmm. I'm sure the nut had to be changed, but um, uh, yeah, the knobs were probably... No, I don't know. No, I don't know. Uh, yeah. Maybe. But but he mostly played a flying V, I remember. Yeah, I don't know that. I mean, now I do. I know that now. A flying V. Well, see, I've helped out. I've done my duty today. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right, so, 1967. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I thought it was 64. But if you say it's 67, you must know. Yeah, it probably is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was recorded in 66. Okay. Uh, But it came out in 67. All right. Yeah. Let's yeah. have a listen. Uh, Born under a bad sign. I've been down since I began to crawl. You know, the interesting thing about this is I we tried to play this song in my band, and it seems like it's simple, but when it, it kept confusing us, and now I know why, because it doesn't follow the typical 12-bar blues, 1-4-5 blues. 
progression. Right. So, you know, it's like you keep thinking, oh, we're, are we changing now? No, we're not changing. Wait, Can now I... we're changing. It just kind of catches you a little off guard. It makes it interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it kind of also gives me a little, uh, you know, early southern rock mm -hmm. uh, sound to it. I mean, it's got, you know, it's definitely blues, but there's... You know, it's '67, so just the you know, the, we're a couple of years before Southern Rock, you know, begins to take off '69, '70 uh, sort of period with the Allman Brothers. Um, but mm, uh, mm -hmm. uh, but um, this was a precursor. Yeah, it sounds like a, a little bit, bit of a precursor. Just listening to it again, you know, this is a song I've heard a million times. Right. Um, but uh, uh, you know, th you know, thinking about it and going, wow, that's just that's such a fucking badass song. So, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But you already touched on Otis's death that happened in uh, 1967 and, yeah. of course, devastated everyone. And yeah. Booker had to play um, at the funeral and just was in another world because he was grieving himself yeah. and he had to concentrate to play. He had to actually open the music, you know, to read the music to play the organ part that he knew very well because he was so grief-stricken. Mm -hmm. um, and then, uh, uh, you know, in 1968... Um, we now Stax was in Memphis in this area of town where this movie theater and there weren't that many places in Memphis for black and white people to meet. And since Stax was a, a movie theater, it didn't have a meeting room. So they would meet at this hotel called the Lorraine Motel, which accepted both blacks and whites. And they would have their meetings there where they would have meals there. They would swim in the pool and then they would go back and finish their recording. And that happened to be where Martin Luther King was assassinated in April of yes, 1968. Same, yeah, yeah, and, the, and, the same hotel. Yeah, right? and they yeah. were highly disturbed. I mean, he was highly disturbed for many reasons, but it felt personal because it felt like this happened in our backyard. This was our turf, you know, like how dare somebody kill King on my back porch. Yeah, like uh, two blocks away from the Stax yeah, uh, yeah. studios there. So, But that, that sparked something in Booker to like really... Um, Question uh, the situation. And, right, and uh, racial. Uh, racial harmony mm -hmm. in Memphis, which, you know, was uh, not harmonious at all. Right. Uh, you know, maybe truce would be a better word to, to put right. there. And of yeah. course now... It was an agreement. Yeah. We're going to live side by side. But it's yeah, not yeah, just really equal, shit. like yeah. as Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas. Separate but equal is not equal. No bullshit. Uh, and, uh, just oh, yeah, I, don't get me started. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I can imagine that things, uh, and I do know for a fact that things begin to change for uh, the uh, African American musicians uh, at that moment, feeling that uh, you know this. Uh, quote-unquote, truce wasn't really working out for him. Right. And specifically at Stax, um, the, the realization that Booker had was, oh, I thought that we were all friends and equals here, but it's only within the walls of this studio and maybe the Lorraine Hotel. But otherwise, the white people I work with are not my friends. They're not going beyond work and, you know, beyond uh, daily interactions. And what he said was the relationship failed to evolve into a sense of caring beyond the boundaries of our workspace. Yeah. And one really good example of this, and not to say, you know, Steve Cropper is, you know, a racist, but this was the 
place and time he was born in that he made a comment in a magazine after King was killed and basically said, hey, Memphis was a, a racially cool place until Martin Luther King showed up. And Booker was just shocked that he would say something like that. But it just shows kind of the tone deafness of white people about the true experience of black people. You know, it's like everything's going along fine for me. I don't know why somebody's complaining, but it's like you don't know what it's like for the black people in Memphis because you're white. How would you know? Booker had to, you know, really realize and swallow. And it led to him kind of questioning being at stacks and playing with Booker T and the MGs. Yeah, uh, there was a, a lot of soul searching uh after King's uh, death and, you know, the riotings that occurred, um, you know, as we say in rock and roll archaeology, 1968 was uh, was a bloody year. Uh, anyway, you looked at it uh, in Vietnam, across Europe, uh, and certainly in America. Yeah. But uh, he had a little bit of reprieve for uh, a certain amount of time after this period where he was invited to a Hollywood producer, director named Jules, Jules Dessin. I don't know if he was actually French, but that's how you would pronounce it if it was French, mm -hmm. to score uh, the music for uh, a major Hollywood feature film called Uptight, which was a movie some people consider now the first black exploitation film. But it was a movie about a struggle of two revolutionary black brothers in Cleveland. And he had to actually go to Paris um, for the post-production and realize while he was in Paris um, that, you know, Paris was, was really wonderful to be in because it didn't have that racial baggage that the U.S. and especially the South had. And he was able to really be, you know, feel more comfortable and feel freer moving about and, and you know, enjoying uh, the delights of Paris. Yeah. And, uh, you know, many African-American uh, artists uh, have experienced uh, that of, uh, you know, going to Europe and finding that they are treated with far more respect mm -hmm. than they, they are yeah. uh, uh, at home in America. Right. Um, one of the songs he wrote at this time while for that movie was called Johnny, I Love You. And this was the first song that he was allowed to sing on. At Stax, he wasn't permitted to sing. The MGs all said, no, none of us is a good enough vocalist you know, to record. But Booker actually has a beautiful voice. And um, he was very pleased to be able to you know, be the actual singer on this very personal um, song that he wrote called Johnny, I Love You. Let's do it. Johnny, I Love You. I said, Johnny, 
Hey, it's the first time we get to hear Booker T. Jones sing. Oh, yeah. he's. I love his voice. It's yeah, just it's, warm it's cool. and, you know, beautiful. It's, yeah, it's not Otis. It's not uh, Sam and Dave. Uh, but um, It's him. It, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It fits his musical personality. It's yeah. pure. It's warm. Uh, and, it's, yeah. it, it's not like Isaac Hayes, uh, you know, who has that attitude in just about everything he does. But it, it just fits perfectly and nicely. Uh, it sits uh, sweetly in the music. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the song that we played um, at the beginning of this episode, Time is Tight, was also written in France and was part of the soundtrack of this of the movie Uptight. So yeah. we will visit that again at uh, the very end. Stay tuned, folks. Okay. So he meets Priscilla Coolidge, Rita Coolidge's sister around this time, and he, you know, just falls for her. He eventually gets a divorce from his wife, Gigi. And this, you know, relationship with Priscilla is kind of fraught from the get-go. People cautioned him not to get together with her and certainly not to marry her. And it turned out, you know, she really may have been kind of using him because she wanted to further her own musical career. And in fact, you know, even though he produced three of her albums and she had a great voice, I mean, arguably technically better than Rita's, she kind of blamed him for never making her a star where she thought that he had made Rita a star with Higher and Higher. And Isn't that up to her? Yeah. So, okay. So, yeah, we've talked about that before. You know, what's stardom? It's not all technical ability, that's for sure. Uh, no, in fact, no. You can put out the you know the coolest, hottest you know record uh, out there, and if it just doesn't arrive at the right moment, it's you know right. it, there's nothing you can do so about many it. Things it's in so play. fickle. It's you know a lot of people like to assume, oh, you know, today we can we can do it with algorithms, and we have the data points to be able to put a song together and guarantee you know, the top ten, and. <laughs> uh, that's bullshit. Yeah, when the music quality is uh, reduced to uh, you know a lack of serious competition, you might be able to get away with that, but not in those days uh, where you know everybody's just trying to one up each other. Um, thank you. Uh, John, Paul, George, and Ringo for starting that off. But, uh, uh, you know, that was still going strong, uh, you know, 10, 15, even 20 years uh, beyond that. Yeah, their their relationship didn't go well. I, I know he was in it for much longer than he thought was healthy for him. Um, uh, like and, a good man, he he probably tried uh, his best and yeah. tried everything he could and uh, just didn't work out. Didn't she get murdered or something like that? Yeah, uh, she was uh, involved in a murder-suicide. First, she left him for Ed Bradley, the newscaster, and then they oh, from divorced. 60 Minutes. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then they divorced... And then she married somebody else who ended up killing her and himself. Uh, Yeah, she had a tragic end. Mm. It's very sad. Meanwhile, the hippie movement was uh, affecting... In full swing? Yeah, and affecting Booker because he's... And also, you know, King's death and and kind of seeing what was going on at Stacks and not being included, you know, and not being given publishing rights and his fair share of the money that was being made at Stacks. Um, he wrote a song called Old Man Trouble. And I know there's other songs named Old Man Trouble, but this was his song. 
And he stayed up at the studio very late, brought some musicians in and made this great recording along with horns. And he took it to Al Bell at home because he was so excited about it. Al Bell, who was also a black man. Now running stacks. Running stacks and a businessman. So he was more conservative because his job and his money depended on being kind of conservative. And the song was basically about, you know, kind of a black the black man as a slave in current society and bell rejected it and said we can't put this out and that's when booker knew that he had no place at stacks anymore that he he needed to keep going ahead with his career and not still being quote a slave on the plantation so unfortunately when he had this realization he went back and erased the tape of the song but I found a later version of it on YouTube. I thought we could play a little bit of it because it is very affecting and shows the state of mind that he was in at the time. Okay, so let's uh, listen to a little of uh, a redone version of Old Man Trouble by Booker T. Jones. quite a departure from what he had been um, composing. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we get to hear his voice again, mm-hmm. which, as I said, is beautiful. Yeah. And uh, shortly after he erased the tape, he left for L.A. He left all his possessions in Memphis and went to L.A. in 1969, where Billy Preston had previously kind of lured him there by saying, what, you're not making any money out there in Memphis. I'm making like, you know, $50,000 a year or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And he was like, uh, he had to join AFTRA and, Mm. you know, um, is that, that's the music uh, union, right? Uh, Anyway, he joined the music union and started making some money. He met Leon Russell. He got involved, you know, in the Laurel Canyon scene. He uh, got a, a house with um, Priscilla and and uh, Rita, who had been living with Leon Russell, moved in with them with her nine cats, and they had all kinds of characters like Joe Cocker and Stephen Stills and Graham Nash and, you know, hanging out at their house. So it got kind of incorporated into the hippie movement. He spent some time in Malibu. He started doing a lot of session work with people like Richie Havens. Um, actually, I think he produced uh, Bill Withers' album, Ain't No Sunshine. Uh, he worked with Barbara Streisand, Stephen Stills, Rita, Willie Nelson, Bob Dylan, Jackie DeShannon, Chris Christopherson, the band. You know, he was just like put uh, yeah, right yeah. in the middle yeah. of all that stuff. Of course. Yeah. Now, one day when Bob Dylan was visiting him on his ranch in Malibu, 
um, he took his guitar outside and played a song for Booker called Forever Young. And Booker felt like he was being blessed by a rock icon or somebody like in the presence of Woody Guthrie when, when Bob Dylan was serenading him. And he asked Booker what he thought of the song, and Booker said he should record it. But when he finally recorded it, it sounded nothing like the song he had played at Booker's house. So that was Bob Dylan. You know, he was constantly reforming and changing and rearranging his music. Now, in 1973, Bob knocked on Booker's door just after midnight and asked him to come to Burbank to play bass on a track. And Booker was like, what are you talking about? Can't we do this tomorrow? But he went anyway, and it turned out they were recording Knocking on Heaven's Door for the movie soundtrack. Pat, Pat Garrett, Garrett and Billy, and the, Billy Kid the Kid. Yep. With Chris Christopherson, right. who was like, got so much money from that movie and was like, dumbfounded like what am i supposed to do with all this money oh i know i think i'll go buy some alcohol so knocking on heaven's door here's booker t playing bass Once in a while, there's one of those songs that Bob sings that you go, Jesus Christ, he can sing good. Yeah. You know, and, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I just got to see him uh, a couple months ago at the Frost uh, Theater, and uh, I think that was the third or fourth time I've seen him. And, and this time it was like, oh, the full Bob Dylan experience where you were like, okay, I get it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Did he sing good? Yeah, he sang. He sang pretty good, and you know, it goes back and forth, and being yeah, able. And, you know, and he played some songs that you know everybody knew, and uh, you know, he kind of enjoyed the crowd, and the crowd enjoyed him, and you know, and he can be quite the iconoclast uh, on stage. And yeah. Uh, yeah. anyway, uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know Booker T played bass on that. Yeah, that's I awesome. Know. He played on many things. I think that we don't know about, and who knows what instrument it was? You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, unfortunately, around. Uh, 19, in 1975, Al Jackson Jr. was shot in the back and killed, and um, the murder was never solved. Mm. It, it's something that still obviously rankles with Booker, mm-hmm. you know, that a black man's murder is not taken seriously, and he, you know... <laughs> Continues. I hope to... he considers that far more than just Al Jackson. Uh... Oh yeah, I mean no, I mean that was, but that was a personal example, you know, yeah. of like, are you going to follow this up? Are you going to solve yeah. the murder? Oh, I guess it's not that important. No. Um, and um, but so that was sad because then when the MGs, you know, did get back together uh, once in a while, they didn't have their their drummer you know they had to actually at one point he, he bumped into Ringo on in LA and and said you know just decided to ask him if he would ever play on any of his uh, recordings and Ringo just said call Jim Keltner so Jim Keltner ended up to be somebody that um, filled in for Al Jackson Jr. On, yeah. from time to time 
Yeah, and uh, yeah, uh, Jim Keltner's quite the monster well, himself. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Jim Keltner's awesome. Yeah, um, another awesome, awesome uh, musician that Booker uh, became quite friendly with. And hold on a minute, I, I, I let, let me guess. Yeah. <laughs> And he talks yeah. about smoking weed with Mil- Willie Nelson too, quite a bit. Like at one point, he was producing. So he produced his his album Stardust, which was one of, of course, Willie's, um, you know, best selling albums. I uh-huh. think where he does standards. So they they got together in Malibu and just jammed. And then uh, Willie asked him to come and record an album for him, which they recorded in in Emmy Lou Harris's house. Because her husband, Brian, had a mobile recording truck in the driveway. Well, I guess if it's sitting there, somebody's got to use it. Got to use it. He makes a joke about, you know, if that's something that would cause divorce in many a family. (laughs) Get that fucking truck out of my driveway. Um, They placed instruments in different rooms in the house, and the recording was done in 10 days. And the interesting thing about the song Stardust was that it was written by Hoagie Carmichael, who also went to college at the Indiana University School of Music, just like Booker did. That's cool. Yeah. And Booker thought that was really cool. And what he learned at music school, he used to write charts for Willie's version of the song, which is his favorite version of the song. All right. Well, let's listen to uh, you know, Willie Nelson's version of a, of a very well-covered uh, song from 1927 by Hoagie Carmichael, Stardust. Sometimes I wonder why I spend the lonely nights dreaming of a song, the melody haunts my reverie, and I am once again with you when our love was new. Oh, I love that plucking Willie there uh, with his uh, with Trigger, right? That's the name of his uh, guitar. Uh, and um, that's Booker yeah. says he got so stoned on the set though that often he he forgot where they were and you know like what Booker yeah. snap out of it yeah yeah well quit giving me the weed yeah. uh, I can and, get some work done and Booker wasn't a big drug taker either yeah. so yeah. you know that was funny. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, his relationship with Priscilla tanks right after Priscilla adopts a baby girl, like the next day, without telling Booker, like, I'm bringing a baby girl home that I signed up to adopt. And then a year later, Priscilla leaves him for Ed Bradley. So he's now a single father, and he meets his current wife, Nan, in 1983. It was love and attraction at first sight. She had her own children. He had his own children. They had a blended family. And then they had uh, three children of their own. So they have quite a big uh, multiracial blended family. In fact, one whole chapter he writes about his love and appreciation for his wife. It's so sweet. Yeah. It's very sweet. I'm glad he's found uh, permanent happiness. Yeah. It's for real this time. He, He learned from his mistakes and he... 
don't we all? Yeah. Well, well never mind. Don't, we don't, don't all. I, I do. Yeah. Uh, but I know most don't. I like so. to think I, I do, try. too. I try. I think about it. Yeah. I mean, when I make a mistake or an error or anything else. You yeah. Know, well, I especially put, a I put some time one. and effort into it. Like bad marriages, hopefully. Well, I haven't had too many of those. So. Yeah. Well, I haven't had any of those. See? I just had the one good one. You're, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. You're lucky. I'm smart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... The next amazing musician he hooks up with is Neil Young. Oh, Mr. You know, Young. Like, kind of don't really New think Citizen of him. Young. You know, he yeah. just got his uh, citizenship. Oh, no, he didn't. Uh, Why would he want to do that? Oh, sorry. He's been trying to get him for years. Oh, okay. uh, apparently, they were on hold because of uh, a moral clause. Oh. Did you know that? Because he's smoking weed. Oh, okay. So, yeah. But apparently, yeah. that's not Th- important. Those of anymore. us who are born in the United States get to smoke weed Freely. and still be citizens. That's right, right. They haven't made a no weed smoking citizenship clause yet. It's only no pregnant women. Ooh. Can- yeah. Anyway, so I believe he used Jim Keltner on that album, but I'm not sure now that I think about it. But the Duck Dunn and Booker T. Jones produced Neil's album, Are You Passionate? And Booker has nothing but great things to say about Neil and his performances, that they were passionate. They always have magic in them. And um, Booker was moved by his music almost more than anyone else's. Mm, yeah, Peter well, Ferrioli will be happy to hear I, that. I, I, don't, I don't think anybody's ever had bad things to say about Neil. They have, they have like, you know, things to say about Shaky. Uh, uh-huh. Just, you know, more, you know, just Neil does his own thing. But nobody ever has anything bad things to say about Neil. Yeah. What Booker says was, Neil Young, you don't have to like him. You just had to love him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the song that I think shows, you know, Booker's influence on Neil, plus I can hear the organ in the background, mm. is When I Hold You in My Arms. All right, let's do it. When I Hold You in My Arms by Neil Young and Booker T. Jones. When I hold you in my arms It's a breath of fresh air When I hold you in my arms, I forget what's out there. All those people with their faces walking up the street. Well, that was cool with Neil. Yeah. 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 I like that. I like that. All right. So uh, I think we're getting close to the end here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Up. I mean, uh, not the end of his musical career. Oh, he, by you know. no stretch no, of the imagination. But, In fact, I believe there was just going to have to be a volume two. <laughs> right. Maybe. Know? Yeah, so, maybe. Because he's still busy as hell. He days. is. He's very busy. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wanted to note that in 94, um, the MGs came back uh, together to record an instrumental album, and they won their very first Grammy 
if you can believe that. It's kind of hard to believe. They should have gotten a Grammy for Green Onions. But anyway, um, was uh, for a a song called Cruisin' for Best Pop Instrumental Performance. And then in uh, 07, they won a Lifetime Achievement Award from the Recording Academy. So that was a big deal. Mm -hmm. Um, In 2012, he played at the White House. Um, Now, what he remembers about that is that Obama wanted to enter the room to Green Onions instead of Hail to the Chief, <laughs> which is very cool. Of course. We miss him. Oh, yes, we do. And and in 2013, he came back again to the White House to uh, a Memphis Soul um you know, performance and Obama sang a few bars of Let's Stay Together, which hounded him till the end because oh, every time he went somewhere, right. people wanted him to sing, sing something. Sing, sing, right, yeah. right, right, right. And nowadays, um, Booker is uh, still active. He's on the road. In fact, his son, Ted, plays guitar with him. Dave and I, my husband and I saw Booker in San Francisco and they played um he has two different things he does he has a kind of a smaller group that he plays with with his son um ted and then he does some shows that uh, are called the stacks review where they have a 10 piece ensemble and they play songs from all the people otis sam and dave booker you know the mgs wilson pickett and stuff like that that's the one we saw that was that was really cool all the good stuff yeah and his he's become quite a a family business now. His his wife is a tour manager. His Ted uh, Ted plays guitar and manages the musicians. His daughter um, is the their manager, and she's also a lyricist. And his other daughter is their social media director. So wow, it really is all yeah, in the family, isn't it's it? It's really really neat that mm-hmm. they can do that together. So I thought it would be nice to kind of. Um, you know, have our last song be a song that he does with his son, which is called Father Son Blues. All right, let's uh, let's play a little of that, and then we'll uh, we'll come back with the uh, you know the uh, the recap and the, outro. Uh, the the review and uh, and then work our way out of here. All right, okay. Father and Son Blues. We're back. <laughs> we are. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really like this book and I really um, encourage people to listen to it on audio. You hear Booker's smooth and reassuring voice and you hear all those musical phrases that he plays on the organ. And um, yeah, it's a really cool way to listen to it. Um, one thing I was struck by um, while reading the book was that I've read now two books in short time uh, that have Memphis as a kind of a backdrop. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it was just really interesting to remember the description of Robert Johnson's time in Memphis and then Booker T's time in Memphis. And I also love how he 
sometimes more than some people might want, people that aren't musicians, but he describes in great detail, you know, chord progressions, how the songs came together, how the different musicians played on them, what made what made the songs work, you know, all as a part. And um, yeah, I found that very interesting because I'm interested. So in- would you say that it gravitates mostly to musicians or do you think it just doesn't matter? Or- no, I don't think it matters. I mean, you know, that's not a huge part of the book. You know, it's just like, if you're interested, you read it and maybe you go to the piano and go like, what did he mean by that? You know, Um, let me try to, or listen to the songs and try to, you know, follow along with his description. But the way that he writes and how he kind of connects memories back and forth and his nice storytelling style, I think anybody interested in that kind of music and any of the musicians I've mentioned in stacks in general would really enjoy this book. All right. Well, go out and grab Booker T's new memoir. Also, I think you said he's got a new album that's... Oh, uh, yeah, it's called um, Note Note by Note. Note by Note uh, is out and about. Uh, and if he's touring near you... You're going to want to grab a ticket. Yeah. All right. All right. So you like the book. I did. And uh, well, and I yeah. like Booker, too. Yeah. Yeah. He, he certainly comes across as a class act, doesn't he? Yeah. He really does. All right. A gentleman. Well, of course, uh, you know, to end this, uh, we got to go back to the beginning uh, and play uh, the more up-tempo portion of uh, Time is Tight, huh? Yeah. I think that's fitting because, you know, time is tight and time you know goes through the book and you know and the it, future it, is the present and the past is the future and, it, and it's time to go yeah and it's time <laughs> time is tight all right I gotta get out of here we will see you with the next episode of rock and roll librarian do you know what the book's gonna be um i'm looking at a, a memoir that's coming oh oh i know it's gonna be the doors Oh, it's going to be Jim no, Morrison. Well, no one just, here, no one here gets out alive. Yeah, the uh, it's yeah, old. Yeah, the usually the, I yeah. do new stuff, yeah, but this yeah. one's old. All right, all yeah. right. Look forward to that, and let's get out with uh, time is tight. Rock and Roll Librarian. Produced and hosted by Christian Swain. Co-host, Shelley Sorensen. All sound design and incidental music by Jerry Danielson. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please. 
purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at the RNRAP. We are on Instagram at RNR Archaeology. Tweet us at RNR Archaeology.